Anyway, Mark chapter 11, I wanted to look at a couple things, starting in verse 27. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but you remember when we went through this, this is when the uh, the scribes, the elders, and the chief priests were uh, challenging the authority of Jesus, and so they they ask him a question, and he turns it back on them and asks a question, you know, and and uh, that throws them off sides, if you will, and and in uh, verse 31, 11:31, it says, And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Well, why then did you not believe him? But, but shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they had this fear of man going on there, right? <clears throat> and then last week, we looked at the chapter 12, the first part uh, in this Bible called the parable of the tenants, and it ended in verse 12 with, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So again, these religious leaders had the fear of man, right? They, they were afraid of people. And then interestingly, if you read the next uh, parable there that we'll get into next week, uh, in, starting in verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. So isn't that interesting that Jesus, he doesn't have this problem, right? Of course, because he doesn't have, didn't sin. But they recognized the fact that they had this fear of man and that, um, and that the Lord didn't have the fear of man. So I thought it <clears throat> would be interesting um you y'all know that what i do for a living i think most of y'all know i i have a ministry that i work with people that struggle with addictions and there's a common thread i've noticed over the years with people that struggle with addiction and it's it's the approval of man well you know what it's not just (laughs) addicts is it we all struggle with that you know whether you want to call it being a man-pleaser or an approval junkie or whatever you want to call it. We all have that problem. And so I thought it was really interesting that within, you know, from chapter 11 that we just read, 31 through chapter 12, verse 12, that twice there you've got the religious leaders that have this sin of the fear of man. So I thought we would take a sidetrack today and uh, look at this and, and, you know, kind of expose it in, in, in for us and then see what it is the Lord would have us do to not be a people pleaser, right? So we're going to look at some things. I, I found a test, but I decided that we probably wouldn't have enough time to do it. If you want the test, tell me at the end of class and we'll do it next week. But I can promise you that you will all fail. All right, you know, I mean, I've been I've been doing the test. I probably do it twice a year, and have been doing it for probably twelve years, and I I still fail, even though I know I said, okay, I got to do something about this, right? And it's a test to show whether or not you're a, an approval junkie, a, a man pleaser, however you want to call it, right? And it's something we all struggle with, so. I thought we would take some time this morning and look at this for our lesson before moving ahead. <clears throat> and um, since we know that our Lord didn't have that problem, as later in chapter 12 there we read shows us. So want to look at f- starting off then maybe 
some key characteristics of an approval junkie. So that's what we'll do first. The first one that I've come up with was that an approval junkie fears the displeasure of man more than the displeasure of God. All right? Now, displeasure fear is is a powerful emotion, right? Did God give us emotions? What do you think? Certainly, right? And and we have some really good ones, right? But displeasure fear, it's very, very powerful. It has a lot of power to control us if we let it. It has the power actually for good as well as evil. What do you suppose some uh, displeasure fear would be for, for good? The fear of displeasing God? Sure. Uh, the fear of sin and its consequences? Right? Um, think of uh, who's got little children? Lots of you, right? When kids, you know, do, have your kids ever been burnt by some, doing something they're not supposed to do? You know, picking up the uh, log out of the fireplace or, you know, touching the stove or whatever. You know, why, would, why are they apt to do it again? You know, they had consequences and they felt that, right? So, you know, I think we, the Lord gives us a conscience and he works through his spirit in our consciences to tell us, you know, this displeasure, fear, the fear of the consequences of sin. Hopefully, if your conscience isn't seared, you feel that. We talked about conviction last week and what a great benefit that is to have. So, you know, the wrong kind of fear, however, leads us to danger. Listen to this. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says... The fear of man lays a snare. What does a snare do? Traps you. All right. The fear of man lays a snare. It is the fear of man is going to trap you. It's going to trap us. Proverbs 5.22 says, the, the, listen to this, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of of his sin. Isn't that incredible? The, the Bible's telling us that we absolutely know that this is going to trap us and it's going to hold us fast, wrapped in cords of what? Our sin. And that, that Proverbs uh, 29, 25 goes on to say, the first part of it again was the fear of man lays a snare. The second half says, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Right? So, if we trust in God, we're not going to get caught in the trap. Uh, listen, to, I've got a lot of verses, so it would probably help. If you want to turn, turn to John 12, 42 and 43. But I'm gonna, I'll name those each time, and, and I'll just read them from my notes here. John 12, 42 and 43 says, Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory in the ESV, the New American Standard says approval. They loved the approval that comes from man more than the approval that comes from God. Oh, I lost my mic. That's good. So, I mean, think of, these are the authorities, and it says that they loved the approval of man can't do that with my glasses on for some reason. It kind of goes double. There we go. 
so these authorities love man's approval more than God's approval. It's bad enough to inordinately long for the approval of others, but it's worse when such longings transcend our longing for God, right? I mean, certainly in a relationship, you want the approval of, of your spouse, right? But when, when, it, when that comes out of balance with your longing for your approval of God, then we've entered into sin, so the first one, he fears the displeasure of man more than the displeasure of God. Secondly, an approval junkie, a man pleaser, desires the praise of man above the praise of God. And we saw that in John twelve forty three. Now, of course, you probably won't see this, right? That the approval junkie admitting openly that he loves anything more than the Lord. I mean, I'm a believer. You know, God saved me. I'm, my life's been great. You know, you, we're, we're going to probably show more and more that, but push him in a corner. Who do you think of? Biblical, right? Peter, right? Think of Peter. The boast, did he boast about loving Jesus? Of course he did. But when the time came for him to prove it, what did he do? Where was his loyalty? And on top of that, what else did he do? He denied him. He lied about it. Whoa! You know? I mean, this is Peter, right? And he said, when pushed in a corner, that I don't know him. I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't with him. And, and he lied rather than face persecution. Well, the leaders in Mark 11 and 12 that we just looked at you know, they had outward manifestations of being religious, but they were among very clear examples in the scripture of those that loved man more than God. And these guys wanted the approval so much that they spent a great deal of their time and effort doing things that would bring them praise, right? They thought that, well, if we can get the praise of man, that's what their, their agenda was. Matthew 23, 5 through 7. Listen to this. this. This is incredible. This is talking about the religious leaders, okay? They do all of their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Wow, the leaders, right? You know, the phylacteries, right? They, 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 they make them bigger. Now, I thought about that, and uh, you know what? I say I wish that I had this, but I suffer from this sin of people-pleasing as well, so my pride would probably really not want me to have this, but think of what a benefit it would be if we didn't have phylacteries, but you had some kind of a digital readout, like a built-in iPad screen, on your forehead, and all your thoughts as you're approaching people are digitally rolling across that sign, right? I've thought about that before, you know, so you're out in public and you're having impure thoughts or something, you know, and there it is, and the person you're talking to, boy, they're reading it, boy, you're weird, you know, why would you think that? But, you know, these, I would probably, that'd be great if we had that, but again, though, would that really be a curtailment for sin? Right? I mean, the Holy Spirit convicts us. Um, I know I'm going to forget this later, so I'm going to say it now because I've already forgotten the two guys' names. But you know what the greatest curtailment for sin in the world is? 
the best way in the world to stop sin. I read in a, um, um, in a, let me say it this way, in Greek mythology, right? And I can't remember the two captains of the ships, separate ships' names. But, you know, the, the sirens, right? There are these beautiful women that are on the banks of the river and they call out to the boats that go by and lure the guy, the ships in. And when they get up against the rocks, you know, they crash and they all die. So this one captain, does anybody remember his name? Ulysses, he, 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 that's the bad one, right? He, uh, he's the one that um, had them put the wax. Okay, Ulysses took his mates and, and had them put wax in their ears, plugs, like earplugs, right? And then he had them tie him to the mast so he couldn't steer the ship to the sirens. And they couldn't hear the calling of the sirens to bug him to steer the ships there. Well, that's legalism, Right? bind them so you can't sin. The other guy, you remember his name? Okay. <laughs> I'll give it to you next week. But anyway, the other one, he, instead of bind, having them bind him to the mast or put wax in their ears, he has, I think it's either him or one of the mates, you'll get the point, they play beautiful music on a harp so that they can't hear the sirens. That's faith, Right? And that beautiful music, that's that, the comparison, of course, is the love of sin or the love of God. So I think, you know, in the ministry that I conduct anyway, I, I look at my calling in life is to present the loveliness of our Savior in such a way as to where me personally, I don't want to sin because I love him so much. The beautiful music of God drowns out the trap and the snare of the, of the sirens. But the bottom line is with these guys with their phylacteries is that they're hypocrites, right? They look like these great religious leaders. And, and uh, you know, that was kind of this, I guess it's confession for Tim time. But um, that was one of the hesitancies I had in teaching a Sunday school class, to be honest with you. You know, because now I, I felt like I had to curtail at least in my conscience, you know, I, like I had to ratchet it up a little bit. Well, that's hypocritical, isn't it? Why, wouldn't, why would I do that just for y'all, you know? So I need to be loving God and walking with him and allow that to keep me from sinning rather than what any of you think, right? But So I guess this whole people-pleasing thing was for me. But these guys are hypocrites. They're Pharisees at heart. And their service to man and God is contaminated by impure thoughts of how am I going to get you to like me more, right? Their, their religion is more external than it is internal. And that's a problem, right? And, and I, I hope that, you know, that we, that never infects the elders of Faith Community Church or, or anybody for that matter, right? Even, Anybody that loves the Lord, I pray that it's never done for an external show like these guys. And their, their, their selfish focus forces them to think predominantly about themselves. They're concerned, a people pleaser and approval junkies, concerned with the establishments and the maintenance of their own reputation. Well, the third characteristic of a people pleaser an approval junkie, is that their speech is designed to entice and flatter others into thinking well of them. You like that one? 
you know, uh, people pleasers' words are designed to cover their flaws and persuade others into seeing them in the best possible light. I, you know, I'm going to speak in a manner with you that's going to cause you to like me rather than really expose myself. Right? The, the Bible makes a clear connection between flattery and people pleasing. I would have you to turn to this passage in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 through 5. So we can see that connection. First Thessalonians 2, 4 and 5, it says, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. So you see here that Paul is saying, you know, that we speak, yeah, he was making a point that he's not going to speak in a manner that's going to, he's more concerned about what God thinks than what the people he's speaking to thinks. And so some characteristics of the communication style of an approval addict are these. I've got a few of them written here. An approval addict rarely confronts sin in the life of another believer. Why do you think that is? Pardon? They have to do with their own. Okay. What else? Might offend them. Might offend them. Right? I mean, have you ever done that? Have you ever? Um, I actually, I actually had a guy tell me a few weeks ago, speaking of our church, that yeah, you can't. You know, I don't know that I could ever go there because y'all, you know, you call people out. And I was like, excuse me? He said, yeah, you know, and he, he said, well, I said, give me an example. And he said, well, an example would be if a girl got pregnant out of wedlock and she was a member of the church, y'all would kick her out. And I said, you know, explain that to me, would you please? And as he began to go on with it, he said, well, you know, yeah, you wouldn't even give her a chance to explain herself. You'd just make her leave. And I said, well, you know, you're wrong. I'm sorry. You know, that's not, we would certainly confront her in her sin, but if she repented, we would have open arms of love and care for her, right? And Phil's right, you know, that if we're afraid to confront people because they might leave, then we may as well just shut the doors now, right? Um, I, I just don't get that. And what's a, uh, what's another reason? I think that's the key one. What's one more? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. You know, and that person may even know it, right? So we're not going to do it. We're doing it together. Okay, another one is that uh, communication style of an approval addict is rarely challenges or even questions the opinions of others. Another one is rarely reveals to others the truth about who he really is inside, right? Especially your struggle with sin. Are you okay with sitting down with somebody over a cup of coffee and telling them about your sin? I'm not talking about the Catholic confessional booth here, but, you know, I mean, are you okay with that? Um, I hope so, you know. And if you don't like me because of that, too bad, right? But I think, I mean, James talks about that. 
you know, and confessing our sins to one another. You know, as a counselor, I think maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that if I do that, it kind of levels the field here so that you know that I struggle as well, and then maybe you feel more open to share with me. Maybe that's a wrong motive, but uh, an approval addict also shades the truth. In other, other words, they lie to not offend others. They uh, find clever ways to subtly introduce their accomplishments into conversations. In other words, they fish for compliments, frequently puts himself down in hopes that others will disagree and purposefully exaggerate their negative <laughs> self-assessment. How about that one? Finds it difficult to say no to those who make requests of him. That's me, right? Um, boy, and the older I get, the more I see how bad that one is. You know, you ever remember when you were little, complaining about how long the days were? Does anybody have that problem anymore? <laughs> you know, I mean, gosh, I wish they were. Well, of course, I wouldn't be able to stay awake. But if they think if they were forty-eight hours long, and you know, and you could stay up for forty hours and then sleep for eight or whatever, I could probably get a lot more done. Well, the fourth characteristic of an approval junkie, a people pleaser, is they are a respecter of persons, and that's because the people pleaser esteems the power and the influence of others more than the authority and the rule of Christ in their lives. You know, their fondness uh, to show favoritism to others, seeking the glory or the approval of man over the approval of God. James 2, 1 through 4. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You know, it's not just the wealthy who are respected uh, by people pleasers either. It's those who are held in high esteem by others. Now, who, what would that be? Not Maybe not somebody that's a millionaire, but... Somebody that's held high esteem, I'm going to go buddy up with them rather than this guy who's not of high esteem. What would be an example of that? Titles behind their name. Sure. Titles behind their name, sure. You know, they might not be a millionaire, but everybody knows who they are because of their, uh, the titles behind their names. Uh, People who have a reputation for almost any achievement are prone to be treated with more respect than the average Joe. Fifth characteristic of a, an approval junkie is he is oversensitive to correction. Um, the people pleaser overreacts to any hint of disapproval. Uh, you, being oversensitive really is nothing less than pride, and pride is at the heart of the whole thing, really. I mean, you could just do a lesson on pride because that's really what lies behind every one of our sins. Oversensitivity may take the form of anger and bitterness and hatred. Proverbs 9, verses 7 and 8 says, Whoever corrects a scoffer gets, gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. And then the sixth characteristic is that um, the approval junkie 
outwardly renders eye service to man rather than inwardly rendering sincere from the heart ministry to the Lord. Now, the word eye service appears twice in the New Testament. Um, let's look at these. Ephesians 6.6 6 and Colossians 3.22. We'll read Ephesians 6.5-7 first. Since Ephesians comes first, if you're opening your Bible that way. Ephesians 6, 5 through 7 says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. And then Colossians 3.22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So in both of these, the reference is to slaves. So the, the implicit idea of this term is a service that is provided only while under the scrutiny of the sake of approval. See that? So since it's contrasted in both passages with a heartfelt sincerity for the Lord, it involves the kind of service that is hypocritical and reluctant. And we've got to be sure that we don't fall into that, right? I service from man, doing this for them. Regardless of the service or the ministry that's being rendered, the people pleaser struggles to do it with the right motive, which is to be pleasing to God rather than to be pleasing to man. Pleasing and glorifying God by serving other people takes a back seat to serving others to promote and glorify self. So we could go on and on with these, but instead, you got the idea of what this person's like, right? And instead, let's look at some characteristics of a God-pleaser, okay? Instead of a man-pleaser, what does a God-pleaser look like? Well, the first one of a, a God-pleaser that I've got written here is realizes a God-pleaser realizes that he cannot please God apart from being a Christian, all right? You've got to be a Christian first and foremost or you can't please God. The Bible is very clear on this. Um, no one in and of himself is capable of pleasing God. Romans 8, verses 8 and 9 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So an unregenerate, an unsaved, an unborn again, a natural man can't do anything to bring pleasure to God, right? Isaiah 64, 6 tells us that any attempt of an unregenerate person to be pleasing to God is what? Filthy rags, right? You can't do it. Nothing's going to bring glory to God from that person. Only those who are born again by the Spirit of God are capable of pleasing God. Now, hopefully that's all of us, right? So the second characteristic of a God-pleaser, now that we know that we're a Christian, and, you know, by the way, I mean, when you're counseling somebody or discipling somebody or meeting with somebody, that's the first thing you've got to discern, right? Do they know the Lord? Because as, from a biblical perspective, there's no... Well, I can't say there's... 
Um, well, they're just not going to understand the things of God, right, unless the Spirit of God dwells in them. So evangelism is always first and foremost when we're meeting with somebody. Um, do you guys have a particular way that you, uh, if you're just, you know, if you don't know the person real well and you're, you're uh, just kind of trying to see if they know the Lord, um, you got any questions you ask? Any methodology? <coughs> I like to ask people, uh, what, do think, what do they think happens to them when they die? Okay, good. Good. You know, the evangelism explosion thing, you know, that was a great little tool, the little two double question marks, right? I mean, if I had two question mark things stuck right here on my shirt and you didn't know me and we're talking, you know, I introduced myself, you might, what, what do those two question marks mean? Well, there you go, you know. Do you know where you're going to go if you were to die right now? That type of thing. Uh, anything else? Because so then you're getting them to talk about eternity, which then starts to fill your mind with whether or not they're on the right plane or not. All right, what else is a good way? Okay, good. I, when I was in the pest control business, um, that's what I would do when I would go into people's houses, you know. I would scan the room like this for a Bible, you know, and if I didn't see one, I'd start, I'd ask, you know, well, you know, hey, do you go to church anywhere? Well, you know, then you can get all kinds of, you know, conversations going like that. And uh, what else? Sure. Good. All right. What else? That's right. That's right. That's a good indicator, right? Did you have one? Somebody else started to say one. No. Share their testimony. Sure. Yeah. If they say, "Well, I'm a Christian," oh, really? You know? Yeah. You can have them start to unpack that. I've started. My context is a little different. I'm not talking about with a stranger, but somebody that's, you know, made an appointment with me. I ask this. Some people get mad at me for it, but. I say, okay, I'm going to ask you a question, kind of a trick question, okay, okay, okay. Uh, how many sins will God allow into heaven? You know, and they'll, oh, you can see the wheel spin. Okay, now he said it was a trick question, so let me thank him. None. That's right. You're exactly right. So let me ask you another question. This one's not trick. Okay, okay. What happens if you die with unconfessed sin in your life? And, I mean, you can just see the countenance change and uh one guy the first guy i'll never i'll never forget this this was 10 years ago i think the first time i did this with somebody and he said well i guess i wouldn't go to heaven there i said well are you a christian yeah i said are you saved yeah are you born again yeah well then you can't lose that hmm oh i'd repent real quick before i died and I said, well, at this point in time, if you know where this is, we were going up 515, 575, whatever you call it. And we'd gotten up to Jasper, right? So now there's access roads, right? We're there at that Highway 53 intersection. And um, it was, should I say, y'all might not like me if I tell you. So I guess I'll have to say it. I said to him, the lady in the car next to us is inappropriately attired. Would you jump up, lean over me, and look at her? Well, yeah. 
I said, okay, well, then you just lusted after this woman, right? And he said, yeah. I said, is that a sin? He said, yeah. And, um, and about this time, we're rolling through Highway 53 intersection there, and there's a dump truck coming this way. I said, what if that guy's brakes just fail? We're T-boned. You're dead, right? Yeah. Did you get a chance to repent from lusting after that woman? No. What does God do with that sin? And I'm telling you all, it threw him into a tailspin. I didn't give him the answer. I said, you know, we're going to work through this over the next six months. And, um, you know, because a believer can answer that, right? And he couldn't. So that gives me an idea of where where, where they're at. And, you know, we have to be sure of the person we're dealing with. I mean, of course, we don't know their hearts. I don't mean that, you know. But we have to have a good idea of whether or not they really know the Lord. There's a good book out right now, and I can't remember the author's name, but it's a Nine Marks guy, and it's called Am I Really a Christian? And we have them at the church office, and it really lays it out there, you know. And so I'll usually give that to somebody after the first time I meet with them, and then we discuss that later. So so you got But the first characteristic of being a pleaser of God is we have to be a Christian. The second one is a God pleaser studies the scripture to understand what exactly takes place in pleasing God. Ephesians 5.10 says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So a God pleaser is serious about obeying that, right? And unlike the people pleaser who spends their time studying the interests of the people they're trying to impress or, or, um, you know, we uh, God pleaser studies the things that please God. That means that you spend a lot of time in the Word of God, a lot of time getting God's Word in you, in your heart. So what's your technique for that? Anybody got a technique for that? What do you do to spend time in God's Word? What do you think? Personal quiet time, sure. I mean, do you all do that? You know, um, I have... Um, uh, some guys here know my technique. I call it SOAP, S-O-A-P. It's an acrostic for scripture, observation, application, prayer. And you have a SOAP every morning. And again, not to be legalistic, but this is going to keep me from being a man pleaser if I have my SOAP this morning. But it's a, it's a way of getting the scripture into our hearts. Uh, the God pleaser wants to understand what the will of the Lord is. Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Ephesians 5.17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the one who delights in the Lord delights in seeking their happiness from the Scriptures, right? Not from people. They read the scriptures, they study them, they memorize them, they meditate on them. What does it mean to meditate on the scripture? What does that mean? Chew on it. That's right. That's exactly right. That's my favorite definition of meditating. And I take it to a word picture. I got to have word pictures. That's why I love reading kids' books to my grandchildren because they got pictures in them. And... (laughs) There's uh, the uh, great R.C. Sproul book, if you got little kids, The Priest with Dirty Clothes. I mean, I read that to adults. I put it on my leg just like I'm reading it to a child. And I, I've read it so many times, I just kind of lean over. I know what it's going to say. But 
meditating. It, it carries the same connotation. You've probably heard, if you've been around me long enough, you've heard this analogy. If we were to drive down East Cherokee Drive right now, uh, there's a couple pastures out there that have cows in them. What are we 100% guaranteed to see if those cows are in that field? What are they doing? They're chewing, right? They hadn't put their face to the ground in four hours and they're still chewing. What are they chewing? You ever wonder that? Cows have four stomachs. And what they do, what we didn't see was two hours ago, they were filling those stomachs up with grass. Or four hours ago, they were filling those stomachs up with grass. All four of them. So now they can stand around for the next four hours and chew. So what they do is they they regurgitate that grass and they chew on it and they chew on it and they chew on it like we should be doing with the scriptures. If you've got it memorized, you can regurgitate it and you can chew on it. Then that cow swallows that mouthful and they regurgitates another one, right? And chew on that scripture and chew on it and chew on it. A lover of God, somebody who desires to please God, meditates, chews on the word of God. Then when you run into trouble or you need questions answered or decisions that need to be made, you've got the word of God in you and the Holy Spirit can bring that to you. So this God lover loves the scriptures because they show them how to live a life full, rewarding, and exciting that pleases God. Listen to, I'm going to read some Psalm 119 passages, 47 and 48. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands towards your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Again, that word meditate on your statutes. Think of, um, what does the word muse mean? What do you think? Consider, think deeply. You know, we don't use that word in the the English language much anymore. To muse means to ponder, consider, think deeply about something. Same kind of thing as meditating, right? In the English language, when you put an A in front of a word, what does it do to the word that proceeds the A? It negates it. What do we do? Everybody's going to do it later today. We're going to go amuse ourselves, right? By what? Probably watching the Masters or some other thing, right? Think about that. Or to a movie. We spend so much time and energy amusing ourselves, and rarely are we musing, meditating on the things of God anymore. Psalm 119, 97 through 100. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I love, I'm sorry, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. 119, 127, 128. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. How could that apply to your life today? I love your commandments above gold. What do you think? Cheat the boss or something, you know? I don't want to read into that, but think about that. I mean, this the psalmist is saying that he loves God's word, the commands of Scripture, more than gold. 
Psalm 119, 159, and 160. Consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So you get the idea. A God lover loves the word of God. Then the third characteristic of a God pleaser is a conscious pleasing God in everything that we do. You know, the God pleaser does what Colossians 3.2 says. He sets it, set, set on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. When we're doing that, it doesn't matter what people think, right? Because we are much more cognizant of heaven's evaluation. I think of Philippians 3 where Paul says we're citizens of heaven. We don't belong here. This is not our home. I have to constantly remind myself of that. And I think of when I was in the military, the weirdest thing, you know, happens there. You could be stationed in the most beautiful place on earth, and all you care about is getting home. Isn't that true? Phil was in the the military as well. Not in a beautiful place. Yeah, I wasn't either, but you know what I mean? I mean, some guys get stationed in Hawaii, you know, but, you know, and all you care about is getting home. You know, why is that? You know, that's what we should be like here. We're, they have a term in the military when you're temporary uh, assigned somewhere. They call it TDY, temporary duty, right? And that's what we're on here. This is not our home. And I have to remind my, myself of that all the time. Um, so, again, we could go on and on with these, but I want to look at some practical ways to please God rather than man. So first you need to understand that learning to please God instead of man is the single greatest remedy to the problem of pleasing man. It's not enough for us to just stop being people pleasers, right? What is one of the basic concepts of biblical counseling is what? Put off and put on. You got to put that sin off, renew your mind and put on the things of God, right? So it requires not only that we break our unbiblical patterns of thinking, but that we replace them. The fear of man, then, is to be replaced with, naturally, the fear of God, right? So the desire to please man above all else is to be replaced with the desire to please God. Or said differently, the fear of displeasing man is to be replaced with the fear of displeasing God. Um, approving uh, or replacing the approval of man with the approval of God. So the the best way to dethrone... This uh, approval idol is to prayerfully develop a desire for the approval of God. You know, first and foremost, go to God and develop a desire. You know, we have to have as our highest goal, our number one priority in life needs to be pleasing God. And, you know, one person I know, uh, Paul, of course, We'll look at him in a second, but well, I don't know this person. They're dead. Didn't know him when they were alive. But an example um, of somebody that was a, a God pleaser in my eyes is a guy named Jim Elliott. You know the famous missionary Jim Elliott, and um, he arrived in Ecuador in February of 1952. He was murdered there in January of 56. For, so for four years, he ministered there, and in his journal. On October 28, 1949, this is prior to him going, four years before he went, he expresses his belief that work dedicated to Jesus was more important than his life. 
All right, and he based it on the scripture of Luke 9.24, which says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now, who knows the famous Jim Elliott quote based on that verse? Most, most teenagers get it. Um, he said his most famous quote is, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose, right? And he often, if you read, if you were around him or read his works, he often talked about having an AUG degree. And AUG for him stood for the King James rendition of 2 Timothy 2.15, which says, study to show thyself approved unto God. That was his goal, to study to show, he wanted to show himself approved unto God. Well, Paul, the same thing, was more concerned with pleasing God than pleasing man. Second Corinthians 5, 9, so whether you're at home or away, it means dead or alive, we make it our aim. I always like to take three different translations for that. We make it our aim, our goal, our ambition to be pleasing to him, right? We need to ask our... Selves every day is my ambition today, is my goal, is my aim today to be pleasing to God. You know, if we want to overcome people pleasing, we, we, we have to aspire for nothing less than to be pleasing to God. So our primary goal in life is that, right? First Corinthians ten thirty one. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all the glory of God. So, you know, I've heard John Piper talk about, you know, you even drink this glass of coffee to the glory of God. Piper uses orange juice. I don't drink orange juice, but you get the point, right? I mean, is that getting too silly? How do we do that, right? Um, Well, I can't drink it. It's got caffeine. I might get addicted. Do you start going down that path? No. You know, thank goodness, right? But, um, you know, it's it's just having a, a, a mental and understanding, a knowledge that that we're walking worthy of even being called a Christian, Pleasing him in all respects should be our source of peace, joy, contentment, right? If, a God, if God is pleased with our lives, what does it matter if we displease man? That's, at the end of the day, that's really what it's all about, right? God's approval is sufficient. Again, we read a minute ago, uh, Colossians 1.10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So after learning to please God instead of man is the single greatest remedy to the problem of pleasing man. Secondly, we need to understand that the gospel, or I'm sorry, that pleasing God requires faith. Pleasing God requires faith. Hebrews 11, 5 and 6 says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found. Because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And faith, and I'm sorry, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. So that, the kind of faith that pleases God is more than an intellectual assent that there is a God. I had that before I was saved. I knew about God. I was raised in a home that God was talked about. We went to the Catholic church, and it was in Latin, so I didn't understand anything, but... God was talked about. I knew that there was a God. I believed that God existed. But that's not enough for the kind of faith that saves, right? 
And I, and I know there's a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people that think that just believing in Jesus qualifies you as being a Christian. But that's not the way it is, right? It's not. I just uh, thank the Lord now for our new director of the uh, mission board with the Southern Baptist Convention, David Platt. You know, he's, he's blowing this topic up now. You know, he's, he's coming out strong that, you know, walking an aisle and praying a prayer is not what saves you. It's not just some, oh, yeah, I know about that God guy. You know, even taking it a step further, believing that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sins is not the kind of faith that saves. I remember, every time I have that thought, I remember of a gal in the inner city of Atlanta that I worked with for years. I had a ministry down there, and it was right across the street from a crack house, and I would sit on the front porch and watch the people. I'd yell at them as they are going in. They'd kind of hide their face, you know. And this one girl in particular, she would always come over to me. How come every time I go down there, you're sitting on the porch yelling at me? I can't even enjoy my high. I said, well, do you ever think, you know, maybe that's why God has me sitting there, so you can't enjoy your high. When are you going to come to God instead of the crack house? And she said, Pastor Tim, I believe in Jesus. And I said, well, would you call yourself a Christian? And she said, yes. And I said, well, what do you base that on? And she said, um, she said, well, I believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I said, you're exactly right. She said, I believe he was died and buried and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. I said, you're exactly right. And she said, well, then that's what makes me a Christian. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Can Jesus be Lord of your life while you've got that crack stem hanging out of your mouth and the lighter lit and you're inhaling? And her head dropped down. She said, why do you want to go there? I said, because that's the truth. If he's not Lord of your life, then you're not a Christian. I don't care how much you know about him. And she walked off. You know, so whether she ever got right with God, I don't know. She would come to the church from time to time. But, you know, we can't be a... That's people pleasing to assure people of their salvation when you know they're living in sin, right? And they're not showing the kind of faith as being a supernatural gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's the gift of God in that passage? It's the faith, the supernatural gift of God that gives us the understanding to profess that faith in God. Without saving faith, no one can please God. Again, Romans 8, 8 tells us that, right? However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So before we can do anything to please God, his spirit must be operating in our lives. God is pleased with a vigorous faith that is operational, not just sitting back with some kind of intellectual knowledge. Um, God-pleasing faith lives life with a conviction that God keeps his promises both in this life and the next one. How, give, somebody give me a practical example of believing that God keeps his promises. What do we mean by that? Can, can we really take the promises of God to the bank? We preach and teach that we can, but anybody got an example of that where you've seen that operational in your life and you're trusting in faith with that? What do you think? Yes, ma'am.
Great example. That's right. That you know, don't be afraid to claim. You know, that, I don't want to sound. You know, not talking about claiming and stuff, but don't be afraid to rely on the promises of God. Right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Right? So the one who, whose faith pleases God doesn't just believe that He is, but believes that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. And what we're really talking about, at the bottom line here, is we're talking about walking the walk, right? Walking the walk of a Christian. So pleasing God, thirdly, requires walking with him. Again, Enoch, what did he do that was so pleasing to God? Genesis 5 tells us he walked with God. That's, was, listen to that, this, Genesis 5, 22 and 24, through 24. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So what pleased God about Enoch? The fact that he walked with him. There's twice in those two verses that it says that. Now, this is really interesting. The word walked appears twice in that passage, right? Well, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word walked is translated was pleasing. Walking is the same. Walking with God is pleasing to God. It's the same Greek word translated twice as pleased in Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, talking about Enoch again, which says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, walked with God, the Genesis passage. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it is impossible to walk with him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So to walk with God is to please God. Um, I know we're about out of time, so I'm going to skip a little bit here. So, what is our walk? Our walk refers to our daily pattern of conduct that we conduct our, our inner life and our outer life. We, we are to conduct our affairs in a matter that is worthy of the Lord in a way that pleases him. Um, I got a bunch more of these. Let me see. Well, let me just do one more. The fourth remedy in overcoming the sin of man-pleasing is to realize that pleasing God requires holiness, sanctification, holiness. The, the word walk we were just discussing is closely associated with the word holiness. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you received, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Right? So walking and holiness go, go hand in hand. And uh, another one is, I'll just give you the title and the verse. Pleasing God requires our co- cooperation. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so... 
now, not only as in my presence, but much more my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul's giving us the responsibility to do that. I know a lot of people don't like that, but that's what Scripture says. We have a responsibility to walk in a manner pleasing to God, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So I've got like six more of those, but we'll stop there. So you get the point, right? This is a huge problem in society. It's a huge problem in in the lives of, of Christians that we that we tend to fear man more than we fear God. But back to, I'll close with my Proverbs 1-7, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or wisdom, right? You know what I think of when I think of that? It's the beginning. You can't even begin to have an inkling of an understanding of who God is. It's the beginning unless you fear God. Not scaredy cat, reverence, awe, respect, honor, glory. You know, just like a baby, I think of a baby, the beginning. A baby stands up, the first thing they crawl and they kind of get a hold of that coffee table, you know, and then they step away and, you know, that's the very beginning is having the fear of the Lord. You can't take one baby step away from the coffee table unless you have the, the fear of the Lord, so... All right, next week we'll pick up uh, back in Mark chapter 12.